many of you are, are very hungry for an authentic move of God, and that's what the United States of America needs. You know, only 94% of this nation still hold to a biblical worldview. And they don't even know they need you more than anything else, more than a stimulus package, more than anything else. The, 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 the world, America, needs the church to be the church. I was at a conference back in January and uh, I was asked a question. We were doing a panel before I spoke, and the leader of the particular denomination asked me, Joe, what, what makes you think that America is on the precipice for a great awakening? And this was my answer. Uh, and I would, I would contextualize it more in, in current events today. You know, Billy Graham said that ministers should preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the next. And I, I believe there's truth to that. You know, the Apostle Paul would exegete, he would observe, he would examine the cultural context in which he was speaking into. And I was watching the news a few weeks ago, and how many of you know the news can be a bit discouraging? I mean, there's a spirit of lawlessness that's hit our nation. It's real deal biblical proportion. I mean, the disregard for authority is at a proportion that you can title it without it being hyperbolic or an exaggeration. This is lawlessness, what we're watching in America right now. And uh, many of you probably remember a few weeks ago, I mean, there was a mass shooting last night in, in, in the Dallas, Texas area. Uh, and I remember the one in Nashville where three nine-year-olds got shot, three teachers got shot. There was a string of, of attacks on our school right in that area. And I remember watching the nightly news, and the broadcaster came on, and he said, now there was a shooting earlier today, uh, but we want to move on. I, I, I mean, they gave it two sentences. And the topic of that night that garnered more airtime was, a politician's itinerary in the nation of Africa, in the continent of Africa. And I thought, where someone is going to be traveling and giving an address is trumping a major atrocity on our most vulnerable in society, and it's become a trend in the last couple of weeks. And I just, I just thought to myself, I remember where I was at during Columbine. How many remember the Columbine shooting? I remember where I was at, the atmosphere, the burden that hit the room. And now it barely makes a tick on nightly national news. That, 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 uh, uh, the, the Bible says we're sin abound that much more the grace of God. And that is an indicator that we need an awakening in our nation. You know, I, I was thankful for the overturning of abortion. I celebrate that. I celebrate when evil demonic laws get overturned. And, uh, but as soon as it did, we had states rising up saying, hey, we'll, we'll have an abortion for you. And I tell you what, we'll put it in our, in our state's budget to pay for it and to subsidize women flying over, having an abortion, Come to our state. We want you to know that we'll be a champion of abortion in America. Friend, friend, when you have that, those kind of individuals, and I, look, I'm not trying to be political here at, in any shape, form, or fashion, but when politicians step into the Bible and begin to pontificate at the church, that's where you need prophetic backbone right now. Look, we need, in, in this culture right now, we need love. Grace, mercy, compassion, but equally, backbones of steel. 
And it's just when, when you see that, and, and you know, my daughter, I'll be vulnerable for a minute. I, I, when I was in the Bible Belt, uh, still, still am, but when I lived in the buckle of it, Dallas, Texas, my, my daughter at seven, seven years old, they don't even hardly know how to cross the street. You can't, a seven-year-old, you can't, you can't, at Walmart, you can't say, hey, I'm going to go to the shampoo, I'll just continue to look at the, I, I mean, you know, they need pretty much constant protection. And the school that she was going to gave her an at-home assignment where she was to watch a video, write her emotions down after she watched it, and it had drag queen dancing in it. I called a friend of mine, Dr. Michael Brown, and he put me in contact with a major law firm, and we were, we were, I was going to spend every dime I had. I was going to die on that hill. Yeah, because that is evil. My daughter was in no shape, form, or fashion able to ascertain and understand drag queen dancing and write her emotions down. Friend, that's the epitome of grooming. You know what that is? I'm going to call it what it is. It's perverts. It's perversion. And we've got perverts that are leading. And that, and that might sound like strong language, but it's real. And it, it, it's even shocking to some in the church as I use this language. But 15 years ago, no one would have thought twice to call someone a pervert that wants to do drag queen dancing in front of five, six, and seven-year-olds. So I say all that. I say all that. And I say this. I say this. To take a five-year-old and say, you know, would you like to be called she that's a boy? To change their pronouns? Hello, why is it so quiet in here right now? That should be a hearty amen. That's not okay. It's not okay to tell my son... Do you feel like a girl? And to put that kind of trash in his head, that's perversion. And so, so we need love. We need mercy. There are people that are really battling this stuff. There, there are people that the enemy has attacked and there's real war. And, and we need to be gracious, merciful, and loving, but we need to be full of truth. And we need to have backbones of steel in this hour. And I would submit to you this, that a good articulation is not going to shift this. A good apologetic, a charismatic leader, more education, a different marketing campaign. We need a God-sent, heaven-rent awakening. We need God to open the heavens and to sovereignly begin to move in this nation and through the church at an elevated manner like never before in this nation. This is not an evangelistic line for an amen. It is revival or we die. It's awakening or bust. Our nation needs the church to release its prophetic edge. And that is not predicting a president. That's not, that's not getting a word of knowledge for somebody at Walmart, and we need that. That's part of our prophetic. We need that. When I talk about our prophetic edge, like a Jeremiah, to cry aloud and spare not. In this nation right now, because God is not pleased with the direction that we're moving in at a rapid pace. We need an awakening. And really the church right now is not at a place that hasn't happened in times past. The early church was put in a position that if God didn't show up, it was over. It was 120 men and women. That was the remnant. Everybody else was gone. Everybody else had deserted. And I want you to hear this. How, how many of you would understand the advocates 
and the partners and the friends of the church are diminishing right in front of our face. And in that time, 120 were left, and they didn't have advocates. The Greco-Roman culture, the Roman Empire, believed that Caesar was God. And the message that the apostles were tasked with preaching was a treasonous statement. It was treasonous. The, 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 the core of the gospel would get you thrown in jail. It got Paul killed. It got Peter killed. Their message was so counter to the Roman message that they believed that they were preaching a new kingdom in which they were, but not a kingdom of violence. They felt that their message, and they put Jesus on the cross for it. And the Jews believed that Jesus was a heretic. They believed he was crazy. They believed he was blasphemous. And they turned him over to Rome. So they didn't have any advocates. They had individuals with complete, I want you to hear this, with, with iron-clad mindsets that were not going to be moved. They were faced with an impossible situation. They were faced with what Jesus gave a metaphor in, you can say to this mountain and it will be removed. Mountains do not move. A mountain can only be moved with a supernatural anointing. And what he was teaching the disciples in that moment of prayer, in that moment of teaching, the woman with the unjust judge, it was an immovable object. And he, was, he, he would communicate to his disciples in closed rooms. You're going to, he was giving them teachings because he understood they were going to be faced with impossible situations in the natural. They were going to have to change the hearts and minds of people that killed a perfect man that didn't hurt, he healed. <laughs> that didn't lie, he told truth. That didn't steal and gave. They, they killed a perfect life-giving God. They put Him on the cross. And now they're going to have to change the entire mindset of their culture. Do you know that that, that is an impossible situation? It would, the, the situation that they were tasked with, uh, there's about a hundred in this room, would like being all of us going to Iran and changing the mindset uh, of that totalitarian Islamic regime. How many of you would know if we were dropped in Tehran, Iran, and began to preach the gospel, we better have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, uh, or we would all be martyred within 48 hours. Do you see the task the apostles had? So what did they do? What would their strategy be? Would they hire a marketer? We, we, we laugh, but in the church in the West, we like hiring marketers to come and present our church in a fresh way. And they, they, they didn't get a strategist. They didn't go find the guy with the highest education. They didn't get the guy with the highest IQ. I mean, the, the, the Jews said these people are unschooled and ordinary. They were almost offended by their lack of formal education. What would they do? What would they give themselves to? Acts 1.14 depicts it. Luke gives the first summary of the apostles after the death of Jesus. Now, they're faced with this, and imagine the emotional roller coaster. You know, these guys are fishermen, they're tax collectors, they have full-time employment, and Jesus calls them out of it. They quit it. They run with Jesus. They hear Him preach. It's powerful. They watch Him open the eyes of the blind, raise Lazarus from the dead, walk on water, stop storms, multiply food that was meant to feed about thirty to 5,000, and then He dies. And then He raises from the dead... And then he floats to heaven. Imagine the emotional crux and, and roller coaster that they were on. What were they going to do? They didn't know what else to do. They gave themselves to prayer. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. It was their number one activity. They didn't devote themselves to sermon preparation, and I believe in that. They didn't devote themselves in how we're going to articulate the message. They didn't devote themselves to that. 
they devoted themselves to on their face, God, if you don't move, the whole thing's baked. And that's where America is right now. Folks, we need a sovereign move of God. But the apostles showed us the grid, the map. They, for ten days, they're on their face crying out to God, and there was a suddenly. I'm not preaching on Acts 2 today. I'm preaching on what it takes to get an Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the place of prayer. And I want to tell you, every moment throughout history, when the church was up against the wall, when Jews were up against the wall in ancient Israel, God always had a remnant. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, it was just Hannah and her family at the end of the book of Judges where it was debauchery and everybody was doing what was right in their own eye. They were in civil war. Homosexuality was rampant. They were killing one another. People were taking money that was devoted to God, building idols. They were hiring priests. They were forming a cult. But then one godly family walked in the house of God and changed the trajectory of Israel because a woman got on her face and began to pray. God always has a remnant. And I I believe right now that I'm speaking to a remnant church and the Detroit Metroplex in Roseville in Michigan. I'm talking to, I'm prophesying right now. I'm speaking to some Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's that have not bowed their knee to the spirit of this age. I'm speaking to some Daniels that's going to speak life in Babylon. In Jesus' name. They were on their face. How are they going to change the world and turn it upside down? The Holy Ghost came on them. That's what we need. It is very simple. We need a spirit of prayer that empowers our witness, our action, and our proclamation. They began to pray. You know what they didn't do? They didn't say, let's come back tomorrow night for a repeat experience. Let's go to the print shop and invite everybody to come back to upper room night two. No, they took it into the street. And you know what people saw? They weren't listening to good communicators. The Bible says they were in awe. They were bewildered. They were perplexed. They were dumbfounded. They were captivated. They were awestruck. They were amazed. They were astonished. Not because of the apostles, but because of the manifestation of God on the apostles. I believe God wants the church to be back in a place where the world is astonished at the nature of God on the people of God. I I, want to tell you, I want to tell you, the indicator of the New Testament church uh, uh, that is really a church uh, is not church attendance, it's not tithing, uh, it's that the Spirit of God is upon the people. If you study the Apostle Paul, the indicator of the people of God was the activity of the Holy Spirit uh, upon His people. That was the indicator. That's what we need. When they stepped out, they heard 17 dialects of the gospel in their own tongue. They knew it was a miracle. So they prayed and they they moved in miraculous power. And then what happened? Then they preached. We want to apologetically intellectualize and try and convince people that Jesus was real. However, Jesus demonstrated power and the apostles demonstrated the power of God. Then they preached the gospel. What would it look like in Walmart if we were anointed to the point where people were getting out of wheelchairs? I want to tell you, the manager would give us the microphone. If we had a word of knowledge for the manager and his deaf ears opened, I guarantee you he would give us the aisle 7 microphone to make an announcement. They preach and 3,000 are born again. I want to, I'm going to show you a pattern this morning. They prayed. They were put into an impossible situation. Listen, these 3,000 people that got saved, everybody say supernatural. I want everybody to say it, half of you said it. Come on now, come on, say supernatural. 
How many of you know one of the hardest cases? How many of you have a family member, if they got saved, it'd be a miracle? Well, look, look at that. How many of you have a neighbor that, you, how many of you know an atheist that's just totally antagonistic against God? Raise your hand. How many of you know a Buddhist or a Muslim that they might be sweet, they might be nice, but if you talk to them, it's going in one ear and out the other? How many of you know someone? How many of you know someone with a with an ideology that is just totally contrasting everything in the Word of God, and they're antagonistic about it? How many of you know anybody like that? How many of you would say that you raised your hand with some of those people? If you went witness to them, if they gave their life to Christ today, you'd say, "My God, that was a miracle." Raise your hand. Raise it up. Come on, raise it up. That was the 3,000 people that got saved. They all had ideologies that thought Jesus was a heretic and blasphemous. They all believed that Caesar was God. They believed in many gods. And all of a sudden, they laid down their idols. And they didn't believe that Jesus was a heretic anymore. And they all gave their life to Christ. It was supernatural. I'm telling you, God used the apostles to change the mindset of a nation. And if God did it then, He can do it in America. God's not done. The church is still alive. So what did they do? At the end of that, they went to the Acts 2.42. It's explicit. They devoted themselves to prayer. Not just the preachers. The people. This was the birth. The embryonic church was a praying church. Acts 3.1. Where are Peter and John going to? Prayer. Why does Paul say, why does Luke say that? He's shouting at us. He's yelling. They were devoted to prayer. What happens when they're on the way to prayer? They've already come from morning prayer. Luke puts him in every prayer meeting there is and a man gets up out of a wheelchair that had never walked before that had never worked before that had never skipped that had never run track he never played football he never danced he never did anything he was bound and the whole the, everybody knew the guy he was at the gate everybody walked by him on the way to church to the way to the synagogue the whole community had seen him for as long as he'd been in existence, and all of a sudden, the guy's up doing twirls. That's a PowerPoint presentation. Thank God for all of our technology. We wouldn't need any of it if we, ha- if we walked in that on a regular basis. So the guy's walking and jumping and turtling. Luke connects the miracle with this prayer meeting. And then what does Peter do? He preaches. What happens? 2,000 more atheistic, agnostic, polytheistic, some Jews in there believed that Jesus was a heretic. All of their mindset shifted, changed, and was redirected. 2,000 more Holy Ghost supernatural miracles. In a matter of months, the hardest cases in the world are laying everything down. 5,000 are saved. 5,000 men. Now, it's so, it's so rocking Jerusalem, the ones that made the decision. Look, 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 guys. These chairs are so stuck together. I'm going to get this stool. No, don't get me a chair. I'll get this stool. They are, they are in front of the Sanhedrin. You know what the Sanhedrin was? The ones that put Jesus on a cross. The guy, that was, the guy that was in the board meeting at a board meeting. And the religious leader said, we're going to kill Jesus. We're going to conspire and we're going to work with the government. And we're going to take him out. They made that decision. These church leaders said, we're going to kill him. And they did. And guess who's Peter sitting in front of? Those guys. I wouldn't want to sit in front of those guys. And you know what you know what you know what Peter does? He rebuked them. That is bold. Everybody say bold. 
They beat him. They release him. And where does Peter go in Acts 4? Where's Luke put him? Prayer meeting. Goes right back to prayer. What does he pray for? Boldness. What? You want more boldness? You just rebuked the murderers that had the power to kill you. How can you have any more? He wanted more. If Peter needed more boldness, I think there's a room for us. And then what did he pray? What, why did he pray for boldness? To proclaim the gospel in an area that was antithetical and hated him. He was still not popular. And then what did he pray? God, stretch forth your hands and do signs and wonders. You know what many theologians say right there? That he was praying the foundation for what he believed to be the pattern of the New Testament church. You're a New Testament church. You're a Pentecostal, apostolic, New Testament church. And what Peter, Peter prayed for you that day. He was saying, let the church... Let the church's modus op, op, normal operating procedure, let it be like what you just did in Acts 2, God. That's what he was saying. He was saying, what you just did when you got the guy out of a wheelchair and I preached and 2,000 people got saved, Jesus, Peter was saying, I like that strategy. Let that be what builds the church, God. That's what he was saying. And we've, it's like the church in the West, we've changed strategies. We've tried to do it in other ways. We have got to get back to putting a demand on ourselves and by grace on God that, Lord, we are not satisfied with doing church the way we've done it. We want to do it like the fathers of the church. I don't want to be like the guy with a million books. I don't want to be like the guy that's famous on TV. I want to be like Peter and Paul and Jesus. And you know what happened in Acts 5.12? His shadow started healing the sick. God answered his prayer. Do you see every miracle now connected to Peter? Everybody say Directly. It is directly connected by Luke to his prayer life. Directly. Luke is shouting at us. The church, now, now 5,000 get saved. He prayed. Do miracles. Let us preach boldly. God said, okay. Shadow heals the sick. Everybody, everybody got healed. Not seven. Not three. Everybody, and it wasn't a meeting of 15 people. It was 10,000 possibly. And everybody got healed. Imagine being in a meeting of 10, 20,000 and everybody was documented healed. So the, then, then what did he do? Then he preached. And now, five, now the church, the church is probably men, women, and children, 30,000. A few weeks ago, nobody believed. Now the church roaring that was a revival that was an awakening everybody say awakening god awakened thirty thousand strong that did not believe in jesus in a matter of weeks if god did it then god can do it in roseville i'm gonna come up that was a that was a pulpit slapping point right there I said, if God did it there, he can do it here in Jesus' name. So what happens? 120 to 30,000 in six weeks. You know what that is? A glorious administrative nightmare. Imagine 30,000 showing up here in two weeks. There's not enough people, you woo, but there's not enough people in the room to even take care, and take care of the people when they get here. This would be the children's working team. And it wouldn't be enough. So what, 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 this is just implicitly, what happens to these guys? They, I, I, this, is, this is what I'd submit to you. 
What are we going to do with the kids? What are we going to do with the youth? Do we build a building? How are we going to get everybody here? Do we have food trucks? Do, where, where are they going to go to the bathroom? How, where are they going to sleep? How, and and I, the, the, they start, I believe, they begin to get sucked to administration. Why? Because it seems like Peter and the apostles started cooking food for the widows. And that is a good ministry. But it wasn't what the leadership should have been doing. And I think Big C Church, our leadership in America, are doing really good things. And I believe that Peter felt, this is not what I'm supposed to do. This is, this is my sermon, so I can preach it like this, okay? Just, I think he might have felt the anointing. Just, just do this, just, just that. Not a lot, just... He thought, uh-oh. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm supposed to devote myself to the Word and prayer. And that's going to be the message tomorrow. And he got up and he had this, all the apostles stand with him. He said, we will no longer do widows. We're going to devote ourselves. See, that? Here, there it is again. Devote. Is, is, is Luke not just screaming at us? He's, black, he's pounding the pulpit. He said, we're going to devote ourselves to the word of God in prayer. You know what? I don't. I don't want my pastor having cake with me every week. I don't need my pastor to be my buddy. I need him to be an intercessor. I need him to. But that's what Peter is saying. I need him to be in a place where he hears the voice of God. I want my pastor to step up here every week. With a thus saith the Lord God Almighty that brings life to the whole region. He said, I, we're going to be devoted to the word of God and prayer. You know what happened then? Ladies started moving in miracles. Philip and Stephen, the first people that did a miracle outside the apostles, start doing miracles. <laughs> miracles was connected to prayer. Again, see? What happens to Stephen? He gets stoned. What does he do? He prays for Paul. What happens to Paul? He gets saved. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus. He goes blind. He goes to a home. And what? there's a man named Ananias in Acts 9 that's in a daily devotion, disciple. God speaks to him where Paul is to go lay hands on him. Gives him a street. Now imagine you're in church today and God speaks to you. There's a guy named John that lives on 331 Sky Vista Drive West. And the house is white, and he's been in bed for three days, suffering tremendously from kidney stones and cancer. And his name is John, and I want you to go there and lay hands on him and him be healed. That's what this guy, he gets a prolific word of knowledge. He goes to Paul, lays hands on him, Paul's filled with the Spirit, his blind eyes are open, and he's became the greatest church planner in the New Testament. It came out of a prayer meeting. Do you see every miracle thus far is connected to prayer? Except, except at this point, Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody prayed that they would die. It was a sovereign judgment. Every healing miracle and supernatural miracle was connected to prayer except for judgment. When God killed Herod, nobody prayed for it. It was a judgment miracle. Acts 10, where's Peter? He's on the roof. What's he doing? Is not this book about prayer and preaching? Where's Cornelius in his house? What's he doing? Praying. What happens? An angel shows up. Do you see Luke is saying supernatural activity is connected to prayer? Peter gets a word of knowledge. Cornelius isn't even saved, and he's praying, and God speaks to him and tells him where Peter is. I mean, that is prolific. He goes and gets Peter. Peter comes back, preaches, and everybody gets saved, and all the Gentiles are filled with the Spirit. If you're a Gentile, you're a product of Peter and Cornelius' prayer meeting. Then Peter in Acts 12 leaves that and goes raises the dead. 
Every miracle we could say explicitly is connected to Peter's prayer life that began to change a mindset of a nation. I'm telling you, that gives me real encouragement that through prayer and fasting, love, grace, and mercy, but with a backbone of steel in a corrupt place, that God can change the hearts of man that killed Christians to bowing their knee in repentance and serving the church. Got to preach. So, I think as believers, we have to look in the mirror. Not your neighbor. There's a time for the church. Not your neighbor, but you need to look in the mirror. I've, I've been doing that. And I've said, God, and this is, here's the deal. Sometimes we read a book on revival and we say, well, I'm going to do that. And well, God didn't ever tell you to do that. I'm going to pray like this. I, you're praying for 30 minutes a day and you read Seymour. Oh, okay, I'm going to pray seven hours a day tomorrow. Well, that might be God. But we need to look in the mirror. And, and I, I would submit to you that I think many good believers and Christians that love God, that have conviction, that live right, are stuck in a devotional pattern that they've had for years. And it hasn't increased. It hasn't intensified. And the kind of devil that was ruling the Roman Empire and even Israel wouldn't be moved unless there was an intensification of prayer. Remember when Jesus gave the disciples a lesson. By this time, they had moved in deliverance. They'd cast out demons. They probably raised the dead, but they went on a mission and they came back and they said, your disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And they said, why couldn't we? And God, Jesus said this, this kind is not going to come out by the kind of prayer you've been praying. This kind comes out by fasting and prayer, a place of prayer, more intense prayer. He was teaching his disciples, if you want to move in more power, you've got to give yourself to prayer more. So I, I want to ask you, in, in grace, I know I've been intense today, and I'm not mad. I just have a burden for our nation. And I read things in the Bible. What I'm speaking to you, I believe, is a prophetic word for America. It encourages me that God used the apostles to change the heart of a nation. Hello. That wasn't articulation. That wasn't charisma. That wasn't finances. That was a spirit of prayer on the people of God that shifted the world. So I want to ask you this morning. I want you to look in the mirror. We're going to have a time of prayer. Where's your devotion life at? Do you pray? Do you have a time with God every day?
Have you got before God and asked him what he feels? About school systems telling five-year-olds that are born a boy, you might be a girl. And asked him to let you partner with him in prayer. To see an anointing release to bring shift. Do you pray throughout the week? Maybe you do. When, when's the last time it intensified? Because the fight is intensified. This is not 1953 any longer. This isn't 63. This isn't 73. This isn't 83. This isn't 93. My, my God, it's not 03. Things... And the church is trying to win with the same intensity that it had three decades ago. I want to submit to you. When's the last time your prayer life really intensified, grew, got stronger, more fasting? And, and I'm not saying to pray eight hours a day. I'm saying if you're praying 30, maybe it's time to do 45 to an hour. And I'm not being legalistic. I'm not trying to put anything on anyone because it's not about one plus one is two. It's about this. My sheep know my voice, and another they will not follow. So I, I want you to do this. I want you to say, God, what do I need to do to intensify my prayer like the apostles intensified theirs to be a weapon in the hand of God to go into Roseville and see a mindset shift, an ideology transformed through the heart to where hard cases begin to bow to Jesus and we could say, my God, that was a miracle. I, I mean, some of these people that were getting saved, some of these senators, and I'm not being political right now, but what do you think would happen if you turned on the TV tomorrow and the governor of Michigan was weeping? And said, I walked into the governor's mansion and something came upon me. And she says, and I gave my life to Jesus. Listen, folks. Her mindset, her, her ideology was like the 30,000 that got saved. That kind is not going to be moved by this kind. We've got to intensify. Holy Ghost, I thank you for this church. I pray for a spirit of grace. Speak to your people. Speak to your people. Here, just ask God, do I need to intensify my prayer life? Or am I where I need to be and where you've got me? And for some of you, that's the truth. If you'd say right now, yeah, Joe, God's speaking to me. Yeah. I know he's calling me to change. He, 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 maybe he just spoke to you. Maybe it's to add fasting. Maybe it's to add to come to the prayer meeting. I don't know what it may be. But if you sense the witness in what I'm saying, that God's speaking to you to intensify, either God spoke to you what it was, or you know that it's got to increase, and you're trying to discern what it is, but you already know he spoke to you, I'm, that God's talking to you right now. Just stand.
come to the altar. Just come to the altar. It's beautiful. He's not examining. God's not examining your bank accounts. Peter and John didn't have any money. He, he called Moses, and Moses couldn't articulate, and he stuttered. He wasn't looking at his natural ability. He wasn't looking at their education. He wasn't looking at their charisma. Gideon had no charisma. He was just looking at their heart. And that's what God's looking at right now. He's just looking at your heart. And he just wants you to hear his voice and follow him. You know what I see? I see a remnant. God, God, God likes remnants. He likes 120 against the whole world. He's the one that did that. I don't believe God is egotistical, but there's something about God where he wants us to understand it's him and his glory. It's not us and our ability. So he'll whittle the whole thing down to nothing. You know, at the end of Judges, I, I've been preaching on Judges lately. At the end of Judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. They, they just began to say it. We will do what is right in our own eyes. Tribes were building idols. And you could find one praying family because the church leadership was corrupt. Hophni and Phineas was corrupt. You found Hannah and her husband. It was like God saying, I got one family that hadn't bowed and I will do more with that. A remnant. I'm telling you, I got to believe God's not done with America because there's still people that'll stand in the gap just just gently lift your hands to the Lord here's my prayer for you today may the Holy Ghost come on you may the grace of Almighty God come on you speak to you and empower you May God's mercy and grace, may the Spirit of God, I mean, it's, it's just been in the last couple of weeks as I've been preaching this message throughout America. It's like God showed me. It's like their mindsets in ancient Israel, this Greco-Roman mindset, These were this was a miracle. 
these Romans getting saved, folks, these Jews getting saved, was like somebody getting out of a wheelchair. Sovereign move of God. God, do it again. Do it again. Holy Ghost. How many of y'all feel the grace of God right now? Yeah, there's a grace of God. There's a grace of God. Lord, I pray for Michigan. What's your governor's name? Whitmer, yeah, that's what I thought. Lord, I, I pray for Governor Whitmer right now. You love her. You died for her. Put a Daniel in her life. Put a Shadrach in her life. Put a prophet in her life. To speak life. To show her the goodness of God. God, I pray for Governor Whitmer. I pray that you would visit her in your grace, in your mercy. I mean, that's the kind of God we serve. He'll visit her. God visited me on LSD. He'll come down. Just begin to pray, church, just every day. Just say, Jesus, would you walk into Governor Whitmer's room and talk to her? I think he'll hear us. Speak to her, Lord. May she feel the grace of God. Shake this state, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.